Hey guys, we're back. Uh, Jason here, your host, Jason Coral, with Whatsoever is True. And we're going to jump right into this one. And it is simply titled, Sex, <laughs> the World versus the Bible, right? Here's our scripture today from Romans 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, okay? Remember, the verse that precedes that, uh, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. So what's the world say about sex versus what the Scripture says about sex? Um, and I think that this is an important thing to know, and I think we all struggle with it. You know, we've got a bad porn problem within the church, too, not just within the world. Um, it is interesting. The world doesn't have a porn problem. It just embraces it. The, the, one thing to remember when you talk to, if you're, if you're struggling with this or you're talking to people who are struggling with it, that the not acknowledgement that it's a struggle, it's a sin, is, you know, is a uh, is quite an accomplishment in this day and time. So the easiest and most dangerous way to be conformed to this world, I, and I'm telling you this is so foundational to what's going on, is to breathe the poisoned air of modern sexual ethics. The Bible's our gas mask. And trust me, the air is poison. The ethic that's swirling out in culture is winds tell, tell us that is everything's permissible except the belief that all is impermissible. Uh, even today, there was a story in my local newspaper here in Greenville, South Carolina, about a young 14-year-old boy who was, was caught up in a, a kind of like a scam online thing. Somebody befriended him in one of his video games, and she posed as a, or he posed, I'm sorry, as a, as a young woman interested in him, and then he enticed him to send a, a compromising photo of himself and then started harassing him looking for money, and, and the kid was literally almost suicidal. Other people have actually committed suicide for this type of scam. Well, interestingly, the newspaper here said he's, you know, as, as children look to explore their sexuality. See, again, that, that's, that explore their sexuality is so replete with danger. So to be faithful to this verse, and it's a big one, not to be conformed to this world, we really should start here. So you're not going to stand as a Christian unless you're ready for this tempest. To be renewed in our mind is to look at everything and ask, what does Scripture say? And so what does God say about sex? All right, God has ordained it to be between a man and a woman and only within marriage. <laughs> that's it. So that's a bomb, isn't it? So, I mean, obviously we bristle at that in this culture. We think our sex life is no one's business, as, and uh, although we make it everybody's business by our behavior, uh, yes, that's the, I mean, that's the default setting. But there's a serious error of omission at the root of this childish evaluation, and that's that God is our creator. That's the, that's the omission. He's our creator. Now, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's coming up in Romans 14. That means everything in between is <laughs> his too. Modern Western culture doesn't believe that. It's just thinking, whatever you do, it's fine. Your sexuality is almost your God. And it defines love now as sex. The height of freedom, so the erroneous philosophy goes, is complete sexual license. I mean, it's rather obvious why this is the case. The sin principle is the insistence upon being one's own God, right? So human beings can't actually be God in any meaningful way, so they have to pretend. And the easiest way to pretend to be your own God is to break God's obvious sexual structure. I mean, this is why you, when you read Romans 1, especially like verses 24 through 27, that's what you're going to see. It's a logical consequence of the suppression of the truth about God 
That's the great exchange of Romans 1.25. Is, is the dishonoring of ourselves sexually. That's the consequence. Atheism leads men and women not higher, not to transcendence, not to glory, but to the sewer. Life without God is wretched and animalistic. The strong will pray in the weak, and the weak will self-medicate in any way they can. And Satan will have us all heal on that great leash of sin if we're outside of Christ. So, what God has created for wedded bliss, sin subverts. What he created to be experienced within the spiritual intimacy of biblical marriage, sin has rerouted as its own good. What is made for honor, what is resplendent in, in that trust and lifelong devotion are central, sin destroys through self-indulgence. Where there should be the majesty and beauty of trust wrapped, I mean, like a warm blanket around a physical act, sin has drained all the romance and left us broken. It's left us ashamed, betrayed, and hurt. Where there should be the utmost joy, regret has clawed and chewed through the foundations of our soul. To this end, racism, poverty, and any other ill on a culture's sensual social challenge, fornication and adultery are, guys. It's a world of hedonism is a world of hell. It's a world of children abandoned and shuffled around due to due uncontrolled lust. It's a world of agonizing heartache, divorce, and bitter betrayals. You want to think about how bad this world is. You need to go ask somebody that works in, in the divorce industry, as I like to call it. Family law, the divorce industry, the, the, the hedonistic industry. That's the fallout from it. They don't put those guys on TV and let them talk about what they see and the agony of divorce, the agony of these children being shuffled around and, and abandoned and all of the acrimony that they grow up in, the foster, fam- the foster care system. All of it's because we're having sex outside of God's plan. When it's outside of marriage, it causes destruction. That's why any talk about social justice and peace that omits sexual ethics is worse than vacuous. It's evil. Sex outside of wedlock is a root cause of virtually every meaningful social vexation and disruption. Sex with someone who isn't your spouse is therefore a direct threat to the entire society around us. If we want peace and joy and life and happiness, it's got to start with the self-control and, the, and to get that, the proper understanding of what sex is. So I know this sounds fantastical because the lie we tell ourselves is that, again, it's no one's business but our own and as long as nobody's getting hurt and all that stuff. Yeah, well, again, let's go back to the foster home situation. Let's go to to any type of divorce attorney, anybody working with, with people who are facing the fallout of that. Even the most ardent atheists lament bitterly when they're cheated on, right? If, and if they were true to their principle that sex is no big deal and everyone has to be free to do their own thing, then why the caterwauling if someone strays? Because the law of the Lord is indeed written on their hearts and they know when faced with the, the desultory consequences of their ideas that sexual infidelity is a far cry worse than someone like stiffing you on a loan or cutting you off in traffic. It's not, not just something people do. It's intimate. It's intimacy. And when we reduce sex to, to this animalistic practice, we lose our capacity for intimacy, which therefore means we lose our capacity to be trusted and to trust. That's what's making us more violent. That's what's making us more you know, acrimonious. That's what's spilling over into politics and the way we communicate with one another. I mean, all of us, after all, 
I mean, it's a betrayal. We know that the intimacy of sex is vastly greater than money or vastly more important than money, vastly more important than a, even a, any kind of business deal or anything like that. We were made by God for relationship, not isolation. This is foundational. We were created by him, who is love, to love, and to be loved by him and others. Fellowship is union. Fellowship is the security of acceptance by God and his people. Sex Therefore, coming off on the heels of this is the celebration of this aspect of creation. This relational reality on the deepest level is the key to understanding it. Sex is made by God to be the intimate celebration of our deepest unity with our most cherished and special love. It's a jubilant and mutual giving, not a taking. It's the clearest example of the intensity of union, of one's heart and spirit, their whole being given in the physical world, and received and accepted by their highest among friends, wife or husband. To follow him is to be lifted up. I'm talking about Christ. To reject him is to debase oneself sexually and to sever body from soul. You see it most clearly in sex. And nowhere is this catastrophic rupture more evident than in how we view and use sex. So again, the Bible's not telling us, oh, just don't have sex out of wedlock, you know, be miserable. It's telling you what sex is really for, and that's why I just ran through that. The law of sexual union between one man and one woman is written on the heart of all God's people. So we see it reflected in every culture, though we find it abused in places where God's grace is, is going to be the most clouded. For example, we look at false religions. A lot of them grant men multiple wives and their concubines. The women, eh, not so much. <laughs> right? Uh, women are treated like property. The more sin there is in a society, the more women are bartered as sexual toys. This is the normative principle in religions, false religions, especially like Islam, where women are absolutely second, even third class citizens. And it's evident in atheism alike. Because pornography and so forth, it debases women. And it also debases men, but really debases women. The, men's, the man's sex drive is, one can suppose, by a precursory glance at the sexual ethics of false ideologies, the lodestar of their theology. And we can see from our perch what happens in cases of war. Think about it. When, when there's no restraint on people, uh, you're going to have an outburst of sexual violence. After Berlin fell to Soviet Russia in World War II, the rape of unprotected protected women was ghastly. Millions of German women were raped by unrestrained soldiers, girls as young as eight or nine, all the way to up to old women. They were assaulted in a city stricken by war and depleted of the men that could have protected them. The Japanese rape of Nanking was equally, if, if not absolutely, more barbaric. Hundreds of thousands of defenseless Chinese women and girls were literally raped to death by the rampaging and remorseless imperial Japanese army. In North America, Indian tribes like the Comanche were notorious for their maltreatment of captured women. For a woman to fall into the hands of those f most feared marauders, it was a death sentence of ghastly proportions. It was, it was also one of the most sexually dehumanizing m things imaginable what they would do. John Wayne's classic movie, The Searchers, dealt with this very topic. Sexual deviance and sin can be seen in other ways, too. For example, in the American South during slavery, and it wasn't uncommon for slave-owning and, yes, married and professing Christian white men 
to have several mulatto children, you know? Because slavery itself was a horrific sin fueled by violence and power. Well, sexual sin followed it. The fact that a so-called Christian man could commit adultery with a slave woman who couldn't reject his advances, by the way, and then due to the social stigma, wouldn't grant the children any rights or, you know, or sometimes limited rights. Um, that's just, you know, the, the, of course, the children that resulted from those sinful dalliances. I mean, all of that's evidence of sin's incredible power to deceive. People look at that and they go, oh, slavery was terrible and slavery, 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 slavery. And it's just they think of racism and instead of thinking of the real roots of it, which is sin causes abuses of power and abuse of power always is abuse sexually. One scratches, literally scratches your head at the shocking moral insanity of, of, let's say, again, the abuse of the sexual abuse of black slave women in a so-called Christian South. And of course, and remember how quickly man fell into sexual sin after our collapse in the garden. I mean, Cain's son Lamech was a perfect model of that. He had two wives immediately, right? Genesis 4. And he, of course, he boasted in his prowess of violence, having killed a young man for striking him. The point is, wherever sexual deviance goes, violence goes too, because when men won't restrain their sexual appetites, they won't restrain their tempers or pride either. Sexual license is a supreme act of defiance against God, striking at his ethical sovereignty, and it fractures our ability to be intimate and the ability to be trusted and to trust. It makes us savage, not loving. So, of course, it's no stretch of the imagination to figure that the man who would take the forbidden woman, that is, the one who isn't his wife, will also, when possible, take a life, too. The rule of history is that where there is less rule of law, there is more sexual violence. And where there's more and more sexual deviance, then there's less family stability, which, when there's that, leads to violence. God isn't mocked and will never be played a fool. His world is hardwired with his rules. And when we break them, we reap the built-in consequences of our rebellion. Sex, like fire, has great power and must stay within its proper confines. Sitting by a fire, for example, with your sweetheart, cuddling and enjoying each other is romantic. Sitting on a curb, watching your house burn down, well, not so much, right? In both cases, the couple's hugging by a fire. It's like this, that we need to see sex. <laughs> God defines the boundaries of all ethical issues, including sexuality. It's not loving to redefine what God has made, since the consequences are so damaging. When men insist on choosing right and wrong on their own terms, rejecting God's word, they cast themselves into moral oblivion, and they become monsters and dogs. We used to, what used to be rather common knowledge to a more biblically literate America needs repeating today. The founding fathers saw biblical marriage as a cornerstone of political freedom because it, without, without it, right, children wouldn't grow up fit to self-govern. Liberty requires self-government, which is why it's unpopular among the masses. Self-government requires self-control. It requires respect. It requires work ethic. Successual license is all about giving in to one's base desires. It's the opposite of self-control. It's the opposite of respect. It's the opposite of work ethic because, I mean, it got in a real relationship. You have to work at it. It's a pursuit of pleasure without commitment. It's the taking of the sacred union without the character to preserve that union. When the founders said that any culture is a mere 18 years away from anarchy at any point, this is exactly what they had in mind. Children that are raised by a philosophy of hedonism make bitter, scared, and alienated adults 
if we can even call them that. The most sacred vow a man or woman will ever take under the sun is the one to, to love until death do us part. A child is brought into that union in many cases, right? So what do they do to deduce a child from a divorce other than the elemental fact that their parents didn't love enough to keep their word? That love is just simply a word. It's an emotion. It's fleeting. They couldn't, their parents couldn't tame their instincts. They couldn't control their emotions for the good of the family to discipline themselves in love. So sexual fidelity in marriage is what God commands of us, and as with all of his commands, it carries with it both a blessing and a curse. Follow that command and be rewarded with security, deep and abiding companionship, understanding, and consistency. Break that command and reap a whirlwind of chaos, regret, shame, anger, financial pain, financial trouble, right? I mean, I'm a self-defense instructor. I, I, I kind of like this joke. I, I can teach you to defend yourself against a, a, a mugger. But, uh, you know, if you had a mugger that can, that can take half of your stuff and make you send him a check every month, oh, wait, but that's what divorce does. So remember Rome, I mean, it wasn't beaten by a better army. It fell because of hedonism. It, it fell because of self-indulgence. And, of course, it was sexual anarchy all over the place there. So this is how America is like a once great prize fighter who doesn't train anymore but sits around eating the easy foods, right, the chocolates and the pizza, a couple of years ago, Super Bowl halftime show, um, Jennifer Lopez, it's a beautiful, talented lady, right? She, she, was, she did the halftime show. And of course, she was, you know, predictably scantily clad. She whirled around with all that talent God had bestowed upon her, not to t- elevate the viewers and help them think of transcendence and beauty. She did all of that to tantal- tantalize everybody. She swung around on a pole like a stripper. She pranced and she bent over, and uh, her goal was to provoke desire in weak men, not inspire the adulation in pursuit of glory and excellence. Her performance didn't say, didn't God make women beautiful, and shouldn't men love them in the Lord, each fully committed to the other, man and woman, husband and wife, to the glory of God? It said instead, desire for its own sake is good. Be a man of appetite, not character. Go ahead, consume God's gifts, but don't glorify him. Don't submit to him. Take, but don't give. That is the ethic. God says life's greatest physical, emotional pleasure requires your deepest commitment, your word, and your honor. The world says sex is like any other appetite. Consume and move on. It's all about you. As long as everybody's consenting. Interestingly, on top of Mrs. Miss Lopez's sexual writhing, she brought her 12-year-old daughter, 12 years old at the time, um, to sing with her. And one supposes that she did this under the banner of woman's power or something. I think I remember her saying um, that, that she was supporting women's power or whatever, right? But really what she was telling her daughter and America's daughters, that you're free when you make men pant for you like a dog in heat. This is the message that was supported by all the sound and fury and money of the NFL's halftime show. That was the message. She later remarked, of course, that she was doing that, I think, in honor of single mothers. And it didn't seem to occur to her that there were single mothers precisely because of sexual sin. Nor did she connect the principle, interestingly, in a side note here, I digress for a second, that of the self-discipline to that freedom, to wit. I think she was 50 when she did this, and she works hard to look like she does. She's got to have a great diet. She's got to be training a lot and so forth and so on. In other words... To get something, you have to have discipline, right? And she couldn't notice a connection there because sin makes us stupid. 
The law is freedom comes from Christ and separation from sin. And sin, like too much, like chocolate and pizza. And if she was doing that all the time, she certainly wouldn't have had a, a halftime show. She certainly wouldn't have been dressed like that. Vice is always easy. Virtue is sometimes very hard. And all of this said, no one who logically and honestly desires societal and personal peace will champion the sexual ethics contrary to the Bible. The Bible is not telling you don't have sex or you'll be miserable. It's telling you have sex inside of your marriage and be absolutely trusted and loved and to be trustworthy and to be loving. The Christian position upholding the supremacy of God's word makes no compromise here. Sex in any other fashion than between a married man and woman is forbidden by God. The church must not give any ground or quarter on this issue because, I mean, to do so is not only unfaithful to God, but it's unloving. It's unloving to others due to the consequences of sexual sin that I've already detailed. Sure, it's easy to give into the incessant pressures of society and hand the world a blank check on the issue of sexual morality, letting them fill in whatever they want in the blank, right? But as we've shown, sexual sin unleashes a tsunami of devastating repercussions. The loving course of action is for the church and the Christian to continue, despite the opposition, to explain the high virtues of Christian marriage in all its glory and contrast that over against the devastating impact of going your own way. Betrayal, heartbreak, single parents struggling to get by, children growing up in the horrible shadow of divorce, there's disease, there's regret, there's alienation. The church must fight the good fight of explaining how sexual fidelity within a marriage is the plan of God for their lives. It's easier to indulge one's appetite and not do the work, not do the work to make sexual intimacy a part of one's life and marriage. It takes a commitment of character from both parties. What we have in our hookup culture isn't, it's not blissful and secure intimacy gained through submission to God. And it's, it's the mutual using of one another to counterfeit what we know we truly want and need. So a man or woman who settles for sexual experience, and I'm using air quotes here, <laughs> rather than true union, drinks a venomous poison that erodes the soul by shattering the bonds of trust between lovers. It's a theft. Sex without commitment and honor. It's a hateful act to the other, not a loving one, in that it involves them in a deeply personal act of self-abasement. Sex is meant by God as a consummation of the giving of one's whole person and life to the, to the other and vice versa. Sexual sin takes what God gave us as sacred and turns it animalistic. We have turned sex into a taking, not a giving. We've severed the demands of character and personal honor from the issue reducing lifelong commitment to a single act of lust and passion, performed without duty, without obligation, or any assurance of tomorrow. And that's why sexual sin is the top of the list. Sexual sin causes a degradation and humiliation of all who engage in it and is the supreme, and you, in today's day, ubiquitous carrot dangled before us by the devil. Sexual sin is connected to violence in that both acts are similar in that they are using the, another person's body in ways the Lord forbids. Sexual sin breaks down our reverence for the sacred boundaries of life. It shatters personal honor. It creates and sows seed of deceit and betrayal where there ought to be selfless love and accountability. And it sends us on a path to dissolution. So, you can catch that. I know that's a mouthful there, right? Um, you can catch that 
all on whatsoeverstrue.com. I've got it out there. I got a nice picture of some roses, by the way. I was looking for something, you know, being kind of a dude here, um, I was like, I got to put something kind of romantic on there. And so <laughs> that's what I did with the, with the uh, article. It's called Sex, the World versus the Bible. Uh, that's on whatsoeverstrue.com, so you can check that out. And I really do hope this was, this was helpful for you because you, like, like anybody, if you, send, if you send somebody out there in, in competition, you say, um, you're a quarterback, don't, don't get intercepted, right? They're, they're good, they don't have anything productive to focus on. If I say to a boxer, go out there and don't get hit. I mean, they've got to be working for something productive. Sex is not the enemy of Christians. The right use of it, the, the right context of it, it's a beautiful thing. It's a necessary thing in our lives. If you're having trouble with this, if you're having trouble with porn, you're having trouble with temptation, what have you, these, this is a way to think about this. This is a way to overcome it by renewing your mind, not being conformed to the world. So all that said, hope this is a blessing for you. I pray that, that it continues to, to, uh, to lead you in the path of righteousness and, and conformity to the will of God in your life. And I'll catch you next time.